HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, those special sounds, they ring in the new year for me. I don't know about you. Welcome. Welcome to the first show of 2016. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. And uh, first off, I want to say a shout out to all of the people who donated uh, over our fundraising drive uh, in the last month. Um, we pretty much cleared our goal. I'm not, I think it's the final numbers are not yet in, but it was looking mighty good come the end of December. So thank you all so much for supporting the network. And for those of you who didn't get a chance to donate um, over the holiday, season. Um, we'll take your donations anytime. No problem. <laughs> so uh, feel free to pony up uh, whenever you want to. Um, so I uh, I don't have a guest today. You're just going to hear my dulcet tones for however long I can spin this out. But I did spend quite a bit of time uh, reviewing and reflecting on the last year's um, big stories and the big stories to come. Um, the first story I want to talk about is a personal one, and that is I'm sure everybody noticed that it was 70 degrees uh, over the holidays, like Christmas Day, uh, the winter solstice. And I just want to let you know that when it's 70 degrees in the middle of December, poison ivy doesn't die. It's still, even though you can't see the leaves, the volatile oils apparently are still everywhere because guess who has a whopping case of poison ivy? And I mean everywhere. Um, so just saying, another wrinkle to global warming is the fact that poison ivy does not <laughs> go away when it's supposed to. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's my sad story. But uh, I, I remain optimistic about my future, even as it um, travels towards my eyes. I can feel it right now in my eyelids. Um, but anyway, so here are some of the food stories that I've been following 
and some of the ones that I will continue to follow um, and uh, will continue to bring to you, actually, in the coming year. Um, to tell you the truth, my, my agenda for this uh, coming few months is to focus on the political. We have, uh, obviously, a big election coming up. Um, the Iowa caucuses are just a month away, I understand. And uh, and so um, the whole sort of crazy, money-wasting, time-wasting um, thing that is American politics is about to grind into top gear. Um, so you can expect to hear a lot of more from those blowhards who pretend to be interested in governing uh, when actually what they're interested in is apparently lining their pockets. But um, with some food stories, uh, I want to give a tip of the hat to some of my favorite writers uh, out there in the foodosphere. Um, that would be Tom Philpot, of course, the one and only, a regular guest on this program, somebody I really admire and always look at for um, updates on some of the um, more pressing uh, food business news uh, stories that are happening. Um, and another writer that I really like a lot, Helena botmiller um, who has gone from being at Food Safety Journal to now sort of, um, I don't know, she, she seems to be writing for a lot of different publications, but look for her byline. She's really excellent. Um, Danielle Nirenberg from Food Tank also did a really nice roundup of stories, um, some of which I've included in my upcoming list, which you're going to hear in a couple of minutes. Of course, Marion Nessel, always great to follow her blog, Food Politics. Um, and one of the things that she did this past year, which I really, really enjoyed, was she, uh, once she had gotten sort of a critical mass of studies from various companies, uh, or studies purporting to be uh, independent research, uh, saying things like, um, for example, the Coke studies that were, you know, so widely pilloried earlier in the year, this past year, um, you know, turned out when it's, they're saying there's there's no real science that proves that, you know, drinking copious amounts of sugar could make you ill. Um, it turned out those, of course, those studies were funded by Coke. Um, and, you know, they're just egregious example after example of that kind of um, research that is skewed by uh, poor for-profit company dollars. And that's something I want to talk about a little bit more in a minute. Um, and then, of course, I love the Food Safety Journal. I don't, I used to have Bill Marler on a lot as a guest. Um, and I, my attention has sort of focused away from food safety Qua for food safety, but um, I always think it's worth taking a scamper through um, one of Bill Marler's publications. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, and uh, and he always has his finger on the pulse of what's happening. Um, for example, the in a, in a couple of unprecedented cases um, that may or may not have reached the mainstream media and your attention, one of course was the um, the proprietors of the of the Peanut Corporation of America (PCA), which was implicated in a big salmonella outbreak about three years ago now, and um, those guys are are, are actually going to be going to jail. And I don't think that that has happened before. Uh, I'm not aware of any other litigation that has resulted in uh, actual company executives being given jail time. And this, in this case, very significant jail time, uh, something like 18 years for the, the, uh, the CEO and then his brother. Of course, I didn't write down the name, so I can't remember them. But, um, and his brother is also getting quite a bit of time. And then a few other of the employees uh, also were meted out two to six year type sentences. But 18 years for knowingly poisoning, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the American public. I, I, I think that's kind of appropriate. Um, by contrast, though, um, Bluebell um, ice creams, which also had a very large outbreak. Nobody's head, it seems to be rolling for that. But uh, obviously, big food safety changes going on there. Big food safety changes going on in Chipotle. Chipotle finally got its... its um, 
I guess it's Tom Philpott put it, the, the halo, <laughs> the halo effect has finally been somewhat tarnished um, with the many, many food outbreak, uh, foodborne illness outbreaks that they had over this past year. It's kind of interesting that they haven't had them before. And I know that there was some conspiracy theory that someone um, from the dark side was, you know, deliberately introducing pathogens into the food chain at Chipotle. I think that's highly unlikely because um, each and every one of those uh, outbreaks was uh, the result of a different type of bacteria. Um, so it would be hard to sort of, you know, isolate those pathogens and then sneak them into somebody's kitchen. I don't think that's what happened. I just think that they need to be as careful as everybody else. And uh, to that end, I really hope that they are going to implement, um, you know, some of the measures that have been recommended by food safety experts like my friend Bill Marler. Um, other news uh, were things like the mergers of, of giant uh, agribusinesses. Um, DuPont, which is also DuPont Pioneer, and Syngenta, two of the biggest uh, genetically modified um or I should say seed companies that produce genetically modified organisms along with the uh, pesticides and herbicides that go along with them, uh, they have merged. I don't know why there is no, uh, why there are no antitrust uh, cases being brought against this kind of major consolidation in the industry. It really doesn't make sense to me. I can only assume that it is a lack of political will on somebody's part that they just don't dare uh, mess with these guys. But the idea that these companies, which are already huge and are now being allowed to get even huger, uh, thus uh, dry, you know, drying up more options for farmers to buy from different companies and so on. This is not a good thing for our food system, and really uh, antitrust legislation or antitrust uh, action should be uh, on the agenda for anybody who's truly involved in the politics of food. Um, another one that really bugged me, and this is part of an ongoing trend, was the JBS company acquired all of Cargill's pork division, um, which was quite substantial. Cargill uh, being one of the top four meat producers in the country and, and one of probably the top ten in the world. Um, they decided that their pork uh, business was, well, let's put it this way. They, they got an offer they couldn't refuse. They were literally, like, they weren't even interested in selling, according to the trades. And, uh, and yet, uh, when JBS, a Brazilian meatpacking company, which has publicly announced that they want to be the largest in the world, um, when they came up with a figure of, I think it was $38 billion uh, to buy out the pork division, well... The shareholders at Cargill, which is still a privately owned company, um, just could not pass that price tag up. And so uh, yet another large foreign company has acquired a large American company. And to me, the problem with these acquisitions is <clears throat> not that I expect the standards to go down or that the worker rights are going to be abrogated or that... Uh, somehow, you know, some disastrous impact on the American food system is going to accrue from this. But what <clears throat> what does alarm me about these sales is that when we sell agricultural products in this country, we are not just selling the product qua product. It is not just an apple, an orange, or a pig. It is also the soil, the water, um, you know, the various components that go into creating that product. And in my point of view, uh, selling off um, something that uses as much water 
and soil, but especially water, uh, to another com- a country is is problematic. And if you think about pork production, you know it's one of the largest consumers of corn and soy. So of course we grow a lot of corn and soy in order to feed those pigs. So we are growing the corn and soy that feed the pigs that are owned by another com- country, and that are being primarily. Uh, shipped out of our country. So we're not even necessarily deriving the food benefit from them. And I, I think there's something to be teased out about this. There is something dangerous. And I noticed <clears throat> recently, again, in the trades, which I read, um, you know, pretty much every day, Australia refused to sell one of their big cattle producers uh, to a foreign company. They didn't want to. They were They were already, they were obviously other governments are thinking the way I think that it's not a good idea to sell off large uh, sectors of agricultural production to another country because, you know, coming down the road here, we're going to have a lot of problems with water and um, we can't be selling off businesses that uh, use up a lot of water, take it out of our country and um, basically you know, deprive us of our own ability to nourish our country. And that, and that's why I think this stuff is, these sales are really quite, quite a dangerous trend and uh, something that really should be looked into um, by government such as it is. And I'm really hoping that we have a reasonable government in the next cycle, but who knows. Um, another story that we followed a lot, um, especially with my buddy, Tom Philpot was water pollution. Speaking of water, um, <clears throat> the city of Toledo, Ohio, was once again plagued with uh, numerous days of municipal drinking water uh, closures. The problem there is a blue-green algae caused by agricultural runoff uh, that uh, pollutes Lake Erie, from which the city of Toledo and others derive uh, the large part of their municipal drinking supplies. And the problem, the blue-green algae is, uh, first of all, toxic in itself, and secondly, um, shows that there is a very high level of nitrogen in the water. Nitrogen, among other diseases, will cause blue babies um, because uh, the nitrogen... uh, creates um, a barrier between uh, exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide in the blood system. At least that's how I understand it. So for small, small people, um, you know, small children and babies, uh, being fed a high diet of nitrogen will, in fact, make it them suffocate from within. It's a It's just a sort of hideous, uh, hideous idea. And I really um, and then the other thing about water pollution that has struck me and which I've also reported on here several times again with Tom Philpott is the city of Des Moines. And, And this is a case that is worth following. Because this is unprecedented. The city of Des Moines, which uh, derives its water from uh, upstream, the uh, the Rocky the Rocky River and the Des Moines River. These are rivers that flow through agricultural counties north of Des Moines. And they are, and I can tell you this from empirical experience, they literally reek of fertilizer, pests, you know, like they have a kind of combination of manure and chemical smell that is uh, distinct and pervasive throughout the city and certainly anywhere near the water. Um, And when the water was poured for me at a hotel gathering that I attended, that's why I was in Des Moines, was for the Nyman Ranch Farmers Appreciation Dinner. The water that was poured into my glass smelled and tasted so bad that um, naturally I wasn't going to drink it. And as I checked out of my hotel, I mentioned it to my hotel checkout person. And I said, wow, I, I can't believe how bad your water is. And she said, what do you mean? 
And I said, well, they poured me water from in the dining room and I, I literally couldn't drink it. And she said, who, th- who drinks the water? Nobody drinks the water here. Everyone drinks bottled water in Des Moines, apparently. Anyway, the Des Moines Water Works, their municipal water supply system, has spent literally millions and millions of dollars trying to filter out these agrochemicals and pollutants. And it is costing the city so much money and it is stressing out their infrastructure so much that they're now facing uh, having to actually completely replace that filtration system. It's simply not up to the task. And the result is, is that they have decided to sue the counties upriver for uh, polluting the municipal water system. And this is a precedent-setting case. This is something that has never happened before. And agricultural runoff has polluted way more than the Des Moines and the Rocky Rivers. It's, you know, Lake Erie. It's the Mississippi. It's responsible for the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It's responsible for the Chesapeake Bay pollution. So it's, 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 this is a definitely a major, major case to follow in terms of forcing large agricultural businesses to pay for the externalities which at the moment are being paid for by the taxpayer. And by that, I mean soil and water pollution, as well as air pollution. These are all problems that could be fixed if these highly profitable mega agribusinesses were forced by legislation to actually install air scrubbers, water filtration systems, anaerobic digesters, and a host of other ways of controlling these pollutants. Um, at the moment, they just there's no, nobody has, has forced them to do that. And so um, all of the costs of that are part of what makes our food so cheap in this country, especially meat. And, uh, and it's something to think about in the future, especially <clears throat> excuse me, as we face um, increasingly tight water supplies. Really don't want to let them get away with that for too much longer. And then on the subject of antibiotic resistance, Jack's favorite topic. <laughs> I know I have probably bored the rest of you to death, and I, I know I've bored Jack to death about it. That's not true. <laughs> I saw you the last time I was talking about it. You were literally <laughs> sitting there with your mouth hanging open and your eyes glazed over. <laughs> Don't be lying to me now, homie. Well, it's been six and a half years. Come on. I know, but who else has covered this as much as I have? Nobody. Nobody. So anyway, just to move on, first of all, the statistics on the use, you know that this year, 2015, 2016, these were the years where the three-year phase in or phase out of non-therapeutic Antibiotics in the food system, in in livestock feed specifically, um, were supposed to be happening on a voluntary basis thanks to several federal guidelines, which were drafted in 2011, adopted in 2013. Now, those guidelines uh, called for things like um, relabeling your um, your antibiotics. This is pharmaceuticals had to comply with this. They had to relabel their pharmaceuticals so that if it was uh, a drug that was labeled as a growth promotant, like a tetracycline, they could no longer sell it as a growth promotant. However, they can still sell it as a disease preventer. And so what has happened is that though uh, the sort of cosmetic... um, Uh, the cosmetic uh, patch that was applied to the public outcry about antibiotics in the food chain was no more antibiotics as growth promotants. Um, Nevertheless, fascinatingly, the numbers of antibiotics in livestock production in this country and indeed around the world, and especially in China, um, has risen by quite some many millions of pounds. And this is not a good 
this is not a good, <laughs> a good development, people. Um, you know, the companies, the FDA has essentially colluded with large meat production companies and pharmaceutical companies in maintaining status quo. And uh, while throwing the rest of us a bone saying, yes, we're no longer using these as growth promotants. So if you think the battle has been won, it hasn't. And to further uh, alarm you on this, um, there is a new, very recently, a new strain of E. coli, which is one of the most common foodborne illness pathogens out there, typically acquired uh, through meat, but often through um, fruits and vegetables because of the um, untreated uh, excrement that is sprayed over them as fertilizer in you know near meat production facilities. They have now achieved resistance to an antibiotic called colistin, which um, is r- literally one of the last resort antibiotics in the market. Remember that new antibiotics are not being produced by pharmaceutical companies. There are no new antibiotics in the pipeline. There will be no silver bullet when we finally run out of, um, you know, antibiotics to treat uh, multidrug resistant pathogens. So the colistin resistance in Chinese pork is a very serious development indeed. Um, And because of the profligacy with which uh, bacteria trade and replicate and otherwise alter their genes, uh, we can fairly certainly say that this resistance will probably uh, be moving around the world in a fairly short order. And also in the course of the research for my meat book, which I am busily writing, um, chapter five, thank you very much. Um, the uh, I learned something very interesting about dust. Again, this is a, st- a topic I've covered, but dust from feedlots is um, obviously laced with uh, antibiotic um, undigested antibiotics uh, and the bacteria that they fuse themselves to. And studies have shown that, um, of course, people who live downwind of a feedlot or a, a you know intensive feeding operation for poultry or, or hogs uh, certainly have a much higher um, resistance to multidrug resistant. They have a much higher incidence of multidrug resistant pathogens in their environment. But they've seen that these that these these particles will go up to the jet stream, and they have identified strains of E. coli of antibiotic resistant pathogens as far away as Africa that are originally from the United States. So this stuff is literally moving around the world. And while there are some measures being taken to try to control the dust, it's, I mean, that's a really tough nut to crack um, from the point of view of the producer. But uh, I'm sure that there's ways to do it if you just have the will and the political um, and the and the financial uh, will to, to implement some changes that would make that less of a problem in that setting. So moving on to something that's better news. Um, this came out of uh, Danielle Nirenberg's food tank list on on good things. Um, she's always so optimistic. I really love that girl. <laughs> uh, hoping to have Danielle Nirenberg on the show in the near future. Uh, she is the, the, um, the brains behind Food Tank um, and has a wonderful staff of people that she works with and they work all over the year if you're not fa- all over the world. If you're not familiar with Food Tank, highly recommend checking out their website. Um, they are really uh, a very worthy organization and um, they're running a lot of seminars and conferences this year. I'm hoping to attend at least one or two of them and, uh, and they always have really good speakers. I, I really appreciate their 
their commitment and uh, and also the the sort of global reach that they have as opposed to being very focused on the local they're very focused on the global um, but anyway she points out that food waste is finally getting the attention it deserves um, our uh, main US representative Shelley Pingree is has introduced legislation called the Food Recovery Act um, to the United Nations uh, their, the goal is to cut food waste in half by 2030, and leaders around the world um, are taking action on this massive problem. And I think we've talked about this again. We've talked about this on this program. Uh, we had Dana Gunders on a couple of years ago from Food and Water Watch, who's been really spearheading the whole sort of scientific inquiry into food waste, how much of the, there is, and the impact on uh, greenhouse gases, among other things. Um, and so, and has just published a book about it, by the way. Um, so that's Dana Gunders from food and water watch uh is that right no no she's nrdc natural resources defense council sorry excuse me um anyway but she she is a terrific um proponent for this she's she's done a lot of research and has many interesting papers and comments on the nrdc website so i I urge you to check it out but anyway so food legislation uh impending from from the wonderful shelly pingree from maine i'm hoping to have shelly on the show in the next few weeks i'm in negotiations right now with her uh, media team uh to figure out when she can join me um also i forgot to mention did i say yes i was going to do i'm going to do all politics all the time for the next few months and maybe for the whole year um so i'm hoping to have not just shelly Pingree, but also Sheldon Whitehouse, my own uh, senator from Rhode Island, who's very active in um, in oceanographic uh, and uh, fish, you know, Sea World, all of that stuff. He's um, not Sea World, the company, the you know, the place, but but Sea World, as in the world of the sea. Um, he is very active in global warming issues. Um, he's the only guy in the Senate who routinely gets up and beats them all up about how stupid they are uh, for not taking it seriously. Or at least, I think they all take it seriously. Here is the level of cynicism to which I think Congress has has sunk. I think they all take it seriously, and they don't give a shit. I think that's the real answer here. But anyway, um, the next thing that uh, Danielle Nirenberg brought up was um, that food workers are starting to win the fight for fair wages. And everybody's heard about the fight for $15, um, you know, which as the minimum wage, which has gotten had had significant victories in cities around the United States. Um, That campaign will be ramping up um, so that elected officials and presidential candidates are forced to account for uh, why they would not support a $15 minimum wage. Um, And you can also look to see uh, the wonderful Saru (laughs) Jayaraman, who is co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Center. She uh, She has a new book called Forked. A New Standard for American Dining. That's coming out in March, I believe. And I have a galley. I haven't read it yet. But she will be a guest uh, right when that book comes out. Um, That's all about labor politics in the restaurant industry. And that should be really interesting. She is a fantastic speaker. If you've never had the opportunity to hear Saru, um, I definitely recommend it. Um, Oh, Jack, I suppose we should take a break. Okay. See how I can just run on and on and on. Isn't this impressive? Oh, yeah. I'm not even halfway through my list yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Stay tuned for a sponsor drop and more stories. And this is a brand new debut for the new season. It's a band named Zuli. The song is called Better All the Time. I'm really digging this. We'll be right back in a few.
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him. All the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for non-verbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, you know, art camps, and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. And I'm proud to have Culture City as my sponsor today. Thank you so much. Um, and by the way, Jack, I loved that song. That was awesome. Who are they? Yeah, again? right. Band name Zuli. Really terrific. That was just gorgeous. Yeah, Thank they're you. friends. They've been on uh, some of the night shows here. So uh-huh. good guys. Very good. Really excellent. Um, so continuing on. Oh, forgot to tell you that this is, yes, once again, <laughs> food industry. Oh, no. What doesn't kill you? I forgot my own title here. Um, I'm so excited about all of the things I have to tell you. No, food <laughs> Food is my, you know, food is my thing. So <clears throat> always has been, probably always will be. Anyway, um, so what I wanted to talk about next, um, and I'm, I'm hoping I have time to get to this incredible manifesto uh, that I down, I actually went to the trouble of printing out. It's like 25 pages. But anyway, we're going to talk right now about food policy action. Have you not been to foodpolicyaction.com or .org? It's a, um, literally what it says it is. It's a website that is um, started by Tom Colicchio and some other like-minded types. And you will be amazed. And he, he, they actually publish every year, they publish a scorecard for how various politicians vote on various issues of interest to the, um, those of us who consume food, as well as those of you who produce food. Um, and so <laughs> you will be amazed, I'm sure, to hear that on this year's scorecard, the overwhelming majority of those who failed to support any sort of meaningful reform in issues that range from water quality to fair access, uh, those those votes are all on the Republican side of the aisle. It's just unbelievable. When you look at the scorecard and he has it, they have it all lined out, like every single member of Congress, House and state, uh, I mean, House and Senate. Uh, is, you know, they're voted, they are, they are scored. So they'll go from a hundred to, you know, zero. And it was really remarkable. Like when you scrolled through and you saw the Democrat or Republican assignation, and then you looked at the scores, the Democrats consistently score in the seventies or higher. And the Republicans consistently score in the single digits to the twenties. And it was just such an eye opening piece of empirical evidence that there is this tremendous divide um, well, the tremendous problem, actually, I won't even go into the divide issue, a tremendous problem with the way that large agribusinesses are controlling our government and our government policies. And I'm sure if you followed the money trail 
on each and every one of these guys, you would find that they are getting $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 in campaign donations from the likes of Monsanto, DuPont, Syngenta, um, you know, Cargill or whoever, you know, pick your favorite most egregious. And I shouldn't even use Cargill as one of the most egregious because they're actually rather progressive compared to some of the other ones like Hormel. Um, anyway, in the meantime, please note that there are a number of pending bills before both houses that are um, extremely important uh, to food safety and uh, to child nutrition, to fair wages in the food industry, uh, to genetic, uh, to labeling for GMO um, products, especially our new Aqua Bounty uh, genetically modified salmon. Um, these are fun reading. <laughs> They're all going to be coming up <laughs> in the next, you know, session of Congress. And, um, you know, it's worth sending a moment, spending a moment to send a message to your local representative and say, I do support labeling on GMO, or I don't want uh, to have you not fund child nutrition, um, that kind of thing. This is all this is all our stuff. You know, it's like our stuff. And if you don't pay attention and you don't participate and I'm guilty as charged as well, um, then you can't expect anything to really change because money is what talks in this country. So if you're not letting people know what you want, um, you can just assume that the agribusinesses will and they will buy those people right, left and center. And we've seen that they do it. And so the only way to change that is to really become politicized yourself. Um, another big thing that happened, which you may not think was that big a thing, but I thought was really a big thing. And that was in the omnibus spending bill that was passed uh, right just before the uh, Christmas break. Um, country of origin labeling was repealed. And country of origin labeling was a really interesting piece of legislation. I, I totally appreciated it. I like to know where my food is made from, made and or manufactured or grown or whatever. So, um, for instance, I don't particularly want to be eating shrimp from Vietnam or Thailand um, because I know that they're using slave labor. I also know that it's farmed and farmed in conditions that I personally don't want to participate in. So I liked having that country of origin labeling there. Um, I think that that's going to be gone as of now. Uh, I know that the reason this came to a head was because of the meat industry. The meat industry hated country of origin labeling. Why? Because they buy and aggregate meat from many different sources in order to produce ground meat. And when you think about that, um, so you're buying, uh, you're buying, we buy a lot of cattle from Mexico and, um, we are a net importer of beef, by the way, just in case you didn't know that. And that's because we all love hamburgers so much. Um, so we are a net importer of beef. So we buy a lot from Canada and, and Mexico. And they were the ones who said, no, we hate this. And so even though the World Trade Organization thought country of origin labeling was okay, uh, the United States Senate elected or the United States Congress elected to repeal it because Canada and Mexico, our NAFTA trading partners, uh, threatened um, American producers and the American government with gigantic um, barrier to trade fines, which is what they considered country of origin labeling. Um, so while I don't have an issue with Canadian or Mexican beef per se, uh, I do like to know when my beef is coming from places or my pork is coming from places that... I don't necessarily agree with the way that they grow them. For example, uh, amazingly enough, Chinese <clears throat> chicken from China was banned in school in school food. 
Now, that's an example where country of origin labeling would be very worthwhile. And uh, I, I would really like to know if my chicken that I'm buying in the supermarket is from the United States or from, from China. I don't really want to buy food products from China. No offense to the Chinese. But, you know, they don't have the same stringent. Um, well, <laughs> I say that with <clears throat> just a touch of salt there. Um, but they don't have exactly the same um, protocols that we do. And um, I, 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 say, I say HACCP is better than nothing. <laughs> so, um, so I thought having cool be repealed was, was really a very, unfortunate exper- a very unfortunate outcome for that particular piece of legislation. Um, oh, my God, I'm running out of time. Okay, keep in mind. Okay, I'm going I'm to speed it up here. No more editorializing. I'm just going to say the say. Okay. <clears throat> TTIP and TPP. Um, those are the big trade uh, negotiations that have been ongoing for well over a year. Um, I think that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, finally they had to publish what those rules are. I have not read them yet. but um, And the other one is the uh, Transatlantic um, Trade Anyway, it's with Europe, with the 27 countries of the EU. Um, And so that, too, is going to have a significant impact on our local agricultural concerns. Um, We'll see how that works out. I'm not optimistic, but I'm hoping that it's not as bad as I think it's going to be. Uh, The good news is that the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed into law by President Obama in 2011, has finally gotten its money. Like all this time, five years, Congress has refused to fund it so that we have actually a food safety system that is, um, you know, designed to protect consumers. The bad news is that HEMP, which is that sort of perverted um, HACCP hazard analysis and critical control points, which is what we use now to basically uh, monitor our food safety in large um, packing companies and uh, agricultural concerns, um, that uh, HEMP, which is the bastard child of that, um, and which you can learn more about in Ted Genoway's incredibly good book, The Chain, um, that is possibly going to be expanded into more pork processing plants. Um, this is despite a lot of evidence that this is not a safe uh, safe um, uh, food uh, safety inspections model. It's just n- not working. Very fast food chain, very deleterious to workers, and uh, relatively little uh, microbial swabbing, as well as absolutely no time to look at an actual carcass or palpate the organs for, you know, um, for animals, for worms, for tumors, and for all the other things that can happen in um, in the food uh, livestock business. So that's unfortunate. So now I have exactly nine minutes to get to sort of the thing that I really think was one of the most interesting things that happened this year, and that was the Future of Food Manifesto. Now this 24-page document. Actually, about 10 of pages are are just resource materials. And if you want to read, you know, like, I mean, it's like a, it's a syllabus for a class, reading the 10 pages of resource material that was, that went into producing this document. It's called A National Food Policy for the 21st Century, A Memo to the Next President. It was written by Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, Ricardo Salvador, who was on this show just recently. I hope you remember. If you didn't listen to it, you should. Uh, and Olivier Deschuter, who was the UN... Um, uh, ran the sort of food and, and agriculture uh, organization for the UN for some years. He's now back in, uh, I think, Belgium in private uh, private enterprise, but still a major player. Um, has a great website, definitely worth. And I'm hoping to have him on the show actually in the coming um, weeks. Uh, he uh, this this document was published in Medium. 
online uh, in October. Somehow I didn't come across my, my desk until just recently, but once I saw it and read it, I was like profoundly impressed and excited about it. Highly recommend looking for it yourselves. Um, it's a very long document. I won't go into all of the many, many ways in which it addresses what a national food policy would look like, what that means, what needs to be changed. Um, but there were some very, uh, very salient points, which I think that it behooves all of us to uh, pay attention to and look for that are sort of beyond the obvious GMO labeling is the obvious um, being one of those obvious things that people sort of glom onto that. Uh, I, I, it has a sort of symbolic resonance that I think goes beyond um, beyond the reality of whether or not GMO foods are safe for us or not safe for us. Um, my problem with them is that uh, GMO uh, foods basically mean that only two, three, four, as we discussed just earlier in the uh, show about the consolidation of agribusiness, um, that only a few companies will be able to, will be selling seeds. And that means that they will control our food supply in a way that's way too scary for me. But uh, one of the things that they bring up in this this very good um, manifesto is uh, to enforce the antitrust laws that are currently on the books. And I, I just find it incredible that the antitrust division of the Department of Justice has not been more vigilant about controlling the uh, consolidation of the meat business, of the seed business, of... Um, any number of other, you know, sort of giant mergers and acquisitions that take place in food production and manufacturing and so forth. Um, this is these are this is a very dangerous, you know, move in this country. I mean, there was a reason why Teddy Roosevelt uh, back in the day and created all those antitrust laws because it takes away competition and it harms farmers and consumers. It really does need to be addressed, and people should be lobbying heavily for that. Another uh, interesting thing was um, that I that I that I bring up a lot on this show, but which doesn't uh, seem to get a lot of play in the mainstream. Although uh, part of Marion Nessel's program to examine those uh, various studies and see who paid for them and who didn't um, is is definitely something that I uh, you know that feeds to this particular issue. But USDA research and um, extension programs are almost exclusively funded by industry. So, you know, what we're doing is we, the taxpayer, are paying for land-grant university systems, and we don't fund the research for them. So what has happened is that research that is coming out of agricultural institutions is heavily, heavily weighted towards the continued success of these mega agribusinesses. And this is a very dangerous thing. And there was actually a book that came out about, oh, must be 10, 15 years ago that I worked on by a very young woman named Jennifer Washburn. It was called University Inc. And it really opened up my eyes to how much university research in general is funded by pharmaceutical companies or genetic companies or people who stand to make money off of whatever research gets turned up. And so... You know, the question is, and the question that they bring up in this particular um, document of the national food policy is they say, why is a public system created to serve public interest being co-opted by private companies? And that's a very good question to ask. And it really comes down to whether or not the American public is willing to fund through their tax dollars 
more independent research into the things that really matter for our continued survival on the planet. And until there is some kind of congressional constraint in funding and, uh, you know, the the land grant system has been released from its private sector uh, stranglehold, we're never going to hear um, dispassionate, uh, you know, un, uh, sort of research that is not motivated by uh, direct profits from other co- from private companies. So that's a main thing. That's a very main thing. Another thing that they bring up is a mandate um, to uh, require federal food procurement in the military, um, as well as other sort of large institutional buyers like national parks, schools, and prisons, and so forth, but that they prioritize the purchase of food from regional producers. And I, you know, we got a lot of guys in uniform now, and they're eating a lot of food. And where is that stuff coming from? So that's, I was thinking, I've been thinking about the military a lot lately in terms of food, um, meals ready to eat, uh, the kind of research the military does around food and nutrition, I think is very interesting. The whole PX system, where they are uh, buying from, you know, they're buying great wholesale lots from from various producers. And who are those producers? Like, who are those food manufacturers that they're buying from? Are they necessarily the best ones? Are they necessarily the right ones? Um, is the military <clears throat> continuing to fund um, less than healthy alternatives for military families? That's, I think, a really interesting question to um to uh, explore. In fact, I'm hoping to do that in the coming year. So I guess I guess I'm almost out of time here. So I'm just going to say that uh, this program over the coming election year will continue to focus on um, political events and political issues that have an impact on our planet and how we eat and how we will feed our future. So um, I hope you will uh, take uh, the time to look at my show page. I do have one. Um, I have a show page on our beautiful new website. I would love to see your comments. I'd love to hear what you think a national food policy should look like. Um, I would love to hear your comments about uh, how uh, access to food is is available or not available in your communities. Uh, if you're an international listener, I'd love to hear what some of the protocols are around uh, agricultural emissions and livestock performance and so forth. Um, you know, I, I, I want to hear more from my listeners. And, and so you can reach me by my show page on the website. You can also reach me on my Facebook page, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Um, and I would love to instigate more of a dialogue with my listeners and hear what your concerns are in this political year where we have an opportunity to actually push forward a much more progressive agenda than has been done so in many, many years in this country and even around the world. So um, stay tuned for more of the more of the good fight in 2016. I wish you all the best for that year. And thanks again to my sponsors and to my wonderful engineer, Jack Inslee, without whom I would literally be nothing. <laughs> and we'll see you next week, hopefully with Sheldon Whitehouse. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.